2: The first measure taken by the village authorities who were party to the demolition project was cutting off water and electricity supplies to homes. Then they sent thugs to spray paint our houses with intimidating words, if you refuse to move, the house will be bulldozed while you are asleep, and those who don't vacate watch out for your safety. Both threats were carried out. Some villagers find their homes bulldozed in the middle of the night, Others were bitten. At night they drove trucks through the paddies and farms, destroying our crops and vegetables, killed our poultry, and fed our dogs poison. They set fire to my courtyard, built with teak wood in the 19th century. Four generations of my family have lived in this traditional home. My life was spared only because I wasn't at home at the time. Those of us who submitted a petition letter were particularly targeted. My eldest daughter, who was one of the petition organizers, was badly beaten by a bunch of thugs when she returned home from work late at night. She was left unconscious, lamented another interviewee.
1: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, Chair of the Economics Department at the University of San Francisco. My guest today is Lynette Ong, a professor of political science at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. Lynette is one of the leading experts on the political economy of development in China. Today, we'll be talking about her third book, Outsourcing Repression, Everyday State Power in Contemporary China. Lynette, welcome. Hello, Peter. So um, we opened with an excerpt from your book with uh, quotes from uh, some of the people that you spoke to in the course of of your research. Uh, But let's talk more about uh, that kind of incident. So so first of all, there are these thugs, you know, abusing um, ordinary citizens um what was what was their objective what were the what were the thugs trying to uh, get the people to do?
2: So these these thugs were you know street hoodlums and and gangsters they are not particularly well organized individuals not well trained to 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 conduct violence uh, These are individuals who are usually unemployed they are mobilized by some contractors or local governments to conduct a project. Their purpose is really to execute low-level violence in order to impose compliance on 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 recalcitrant citizens to get them to do something they would not otherwise do so, by imposing usually low level violence. So from intimidation, spray painting people's houses, uh, cutting off utility supplies is almost like the default positions. And when those are those strategies are not not successful, they will go on to you know intimidation and then beating people up, uh, possibly uh, as the most violent strategy,
1: and they're trying to get people to move out of their homes.
2: They are trying to get people to move out of, of their homes to give up their land. Uh, sometimes, you know, if so they, uh, if the government cannot produce uh, proper proper uh, papers to show to show that this is uh, a legal procedure, if. procedures are not followed properly you can imagine peasants and residents do not want to comply with uh, government policies Uh, they are also being deployed sometimes to deal with petitioners so the second quotation is about how thugs were deployed to beat up uh, petition organizers
1: yeah so let's talk about each of those phenomena in turn so those aren't the central topic of your book um because they're well known to people working on china but Um, First of all, why is there such an issue around uh, land ownership and and moving people off of land in in China over the past uh, few decades?
2: Um, So when at the beginning uh, of um, this is about 10 years ago, so when Li Keqiang first came to power, um, he actually explicitly articulated that China is going to promote urbanization not only because you know they want to move people around but because as an engine of growth because urbanization involves construction and construction activities would create jobs and create uh and has spillover effects over services sector so that is very much seen as a growth engine and local officials are evaluated on a bunch of criteria uh, that are related to gdp attainment so people, you know, officials out there would put all their resources into grabbing land, demolishing houses, just to create the buzz around urbanization and its related uh, economic act- activities. Because this is how they are evaluated.
1: Okay, so local officials are are induced to uh, to promote development and not just development generically, but a specific model of development that involves lots of infrastructure and housing construction, um, sort of. Um, in Correct. some cases, even if there's not immediate demand for it, but just like to create activity, moving people off off the the land and converting Correct. small rural villages into into dense modern. Uh, yes, out- yes.
2: Okay. So you know that's the that's the rationale behind why. Uh, Urbanization and the sort of strategies, outsourcing, repression type of strategies that I described in the book are so prevalent, but the logic of use of using of exercising state state power, that sort of strategies could actually be found throughout a bunch of other policies, such as collecting collection of illegal taxes. One uh, the fee for 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 exceeding the one-child policy, for breaking the one-child policy, and more recently to zero COVID. Uh, we have seen it on social media, similar strategies of deploying thugs, deploying gangsters, as well as deploying brokers, which is the second part of my book, the the focus shifted to non-violent strategies. That, uh, those, those things could be seen in other areas too.
1: Yeah, so explain more about the, the non-governmental thugs, you know, because Um, As as everyone knows, China has an authoritarian government and any American who knows a little bit about uh, Chinese politics probably has images in their head of, you know, tanks driving through Beijing toward Tiananmen Square. So like if this is a country that can deploy tanks against its people, why doesn't it just have the police or the military move people off land when they want them to move off land? Why do they have have to go and use, uh, use these kind of untrained, undisciplined thugs?
2: That's a, great, that's a great question. I think when, when we think about violent repression, uh, there are two dimensions to it. It is usually, in Western concept, an exposed measure. So when there's a large protest or collective action, the state might send in the military or sometimes the police to arrest people, to put down protesters. But I think deploying informal facts, right, the, the social actors, non-state actors, is Intended or designed to be a preemptive approach, so they go go intimidate people and deal with people before before protests break out, right? So if the government has some information about people are trying to organize or people have been resisting in certain areas, they they trying to 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 hire low level violence third party agent to preempt uh, the formation of collective action. That's one. That's one dimension. The other dimension is. Is I think by outsourcing violence, by outsourcing particularly violent repression to someone else, it's a way of of getting things done while not hurting your legitimacy all that much. So it's a it's a it's a pretty smart uh it's a pretty smart strategy. Um, it has some analogy to to uh, a recent book uh, called "Dictators," where you know dictators we know that dictators they want to be. They want to be uh, loved and feared. They want to impose their compliance on the citizens. But if they they impose too much repression, they will get resistance. And outsourcing repression, I think the beauty of that is it is able to address the trade-off between the two to the extent that the state can then impose its compliance on the one hand and minimizing resistance and the backlash on the other hand. So they could actually have the best of both worlds.
1: Right, yeah. So I actually had um, Dan Treisman uh, on the the show um, a little while back for, for his book *Spin Dictators* with uh, Sergey Guriev, and um, yeah, they they look uh, around the world and yeah, they sort of document a, a shift from uh, authoritarian governments that just kind of tell people what to do and you know bash heads together until people do it if if necessary um, to yeah a more modern version where they try to um, you know, manipulate the information environment, you know, not just through like old fashioned propaganda, but, you know, through through social media and other, uh, you know, more subtle censorship of the news to get people to actually think that, you know, uh, you know, something some version of like, despite its faults, this is the best government we could possibly have. So we really should uh, support it. And so you're saying that the thugs for hire kind of fits into that framework as well. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So yeah. one of the strategies or one of the main points, main takeaway points of the book is that you know in there's an increasing trend of authoritarian governments camouflaging violent repression, which would usually discredit the dictator, right? But so so my argument is that by outsourcing repression. By camouflaging violent repression, by getting third-party non-state actors to do it, uh, they can actually, you know, it it wouldn't it wouldn't usually discredit the dictators if there's no agency problem. If excessive violence were used, then there will be agency problem. But in chapter three, I looked at a bunch of cases, two thousand cases from. Uh, from a collection of uh, data set that I have built, uh, on average, uh, when thugs were deployed, even though they were more likely to do violent jobs, uh, the likelihood of provoking violent and non-violent actions from citizens is usually ne- negative or very low.
1: So most of the time, they can just be they can be sent out, and they'll and once people realize that. They're there. They'll they'll go along with whatever the orders are. But don't they still realize that ultimately these guys must be coming from you know even if they're not wearing uniforms they must be from the government.
2: Yes, I think you know the people have some ideas that they have some sort of association with the government, uh, but the fact that they are they are they are not wearing uniform and their non state identity um, uh, also provides the state uh, is uh, you know. Um, the opportunity for plausible deniability they can turn around and say that you know i did not do that uh um and they can escape responsibility
1: isn't there is there an element also of, of deniability maybe upwards like if i'm a local you know mayor and i want people to move out of uh some area um you know if i sent i mean i don't, I don't actually have control of the military just the way china is I do have control of the local police. So I could send in the police maybe, but then maybe I wouldn't actually want to tell the provincial government, like, yes, I went in and, you know, shot a bunch of people or, or fomented a riot to, to, to do this housing development. Whereas if it's if it's just these anonymous thugs, I can say, oh, well, the property developer, because there is a property developer involved as well, usually, right? It's sort of a collaboration between the, the local state and the property developer. I can kind of blame them and say, oh my goodness, I had no idea that they were behaving so badly and that and i can tell that story both both sort of downward to citizens and also upward to uh to my superiors
2: yeah so the accountability goes both ways so if a case involves excessive violence if there's agency problem involved right so people could take a snapshot of the violent incidents and upload it to social media that would of course hurt uh, the local government's le- legitimacy in the eyes of the citizens. That's downward accountability. But if it gets excessive, and uh, it, it will also uh, put the central government or provincial government in, in, in trouble, right? Uh, because they are ultimately accountable to someone higher up. So eventually, uh, it has happened in the case studies that I described in Chapter 4, some municipal government has use excessive violence, then the provincial government eventually stepped in uh, because they, it put them in a very bad light Too, they have to fire the municipal governor. Um, in this case, there is some sort of upward accountability. So there's it exercises that in both directions.
1: Right, because in a sense, the higher levels, they also may or may not actually care whether violence is used, but they don't want to be associated or sort of tainted to Correct. It, so they yeah have to-
2: so so if the violence is not excessive they will usually close one eye because the root cause of using of using third-party outsourced violence is because there's a lot of unfunded mandates right after 94 fiscal recentralization uh, local governments have a lot of expenditures but not enough revenue because a lot of revenues have been recentralized to the central government. This is a perennial uh, problem in Chinese politics. So, you know, they would close one eye as long as things are done. But if you get into too much of a uh, trouble, if there's expose on social media, you eventually get me into trouble too. Then I have to step in and then fire you.
1: Right. And just to, to make sure I'm getting all the links. So this, um, the uh, change from the 1990s in the taxation system in China um, meant that I mean, first of all, there's no such thing as a local government tax, right? You can't really just, you know, in San Francisco, where I live, you know, we're always voting about should we have another tax on this? Should we tax the rich people? Should we tax the home, tax the homeowners? Should we tax whoever have a sales tax? And local governments can't do that in China. But they're still told by the central government. They need to spend more money on schools or sanitation or health care. No,
2: so so they are actually taxes. They are value at the tax, business tax, uh, uh. uh. Personal income tax, agricultural tax, which were abolished 15 years ago, and and a bunch of smaller taxes. So even though they are kind of uh, five, seven, ten different types of taxes, they have been gradually re-centralized from 1994 onwards, divided into various stages. Uh, so over the last two, three decades, uh, increasing number of sources of revenue that belong, that used to belong to the, gov- the local governments, have been re-centralized to the central level.
1: Right. So in a federalist system, we could like decide on local taxes. But in China, what the taxes are is basically decided at very high levels. And then moreover, they decide, here's how much of it, here's how much of your local taxes you're going to get back, which could in some cases be a subsidy. But it sounds like quite often is not enough to cover the expenses.
2: Correct. Then, so yeah. yeah. So China, in terms of its physical arrangement, has a decentralized structure, right? But in terms of political evaluation, is still very much a, a centralized structure, and there's a tension between the two, too, right? Mm-hmm. So. On the one hand they have to they have to provide public goods and services there's unfunded mandates they don't have sufficient expenditures but on the other hand you are still evaluated evaluated by people at the top right even though you're not given sufficient uh, resources which is part of the problem of of uh, you know partially reformed economy
1: right and so then this this is part of why there's such a huge issue with land so it's not just about sort of the economic growth mandate of local officials but also this is a way that since they can't actually tax, this is one of the few things they can do that actually generates revenue for the local government, is that
2: right? Correct. I think from a political economy perspective, is the is the imperative to collect revenue and to accumulate revenue that is driving that has been driving local government going out there to grab land and to conduct housing demolition. But the strategies that they use, the strategy of outsourcing repression is actually prevalent uh, throughout a number of issue areas where the government lacks legitimacy in doing what they do, such as collection of illegal taxes and and fees, and now with zero COVID, with, you know, res- with resistance from citizens, they are hiring people from outside to dress themselves up in white hazmat suits. You know, you see, you see on social media, beating people up if they refuse to take uh, COVID tests.
1: I was thinking about that. I was gonna ask you about that. So, so, But in that case, if you're wearing a white hazmat suit, I mean, doesn't that pretty much, you know, you've pretty much taken on an official identity. I mean, however this person was recruited, you know, if someone says, Well, I went to a COVID testing center or a bunch of people came to my apartment building and said the government has locked this down and here I am in my hazmat suit and I'm gonna beat you if you try to leave. Yeah. It's hard it's hard to see the government getting off, you know, without blame for that. There's no sort of third party they could say, Oh, you know, it was there's no developer or other person they could blame. It really is pretty much the government, isn't it?
2: Sure. So, so I would think, you know, what are the other options available to local governments who want to administer, uh, zero COVID in a violent manner? They could send in a police, someone who actually dressed in uniform. They could send in, uh, uh someone who works in neighborhood committees who know that this person explicitly is associated with the government. They could send in a thugs that doesn't wear a Hazmat suit, or they could hire a thugs dressed in white hazmat suits. You know, I think given a, this range of options, someone with an anonymous identity uh, still pro, still provides them with some degree of uh, possible deniability and as well as protection.
1: Mm-hmm. And so, um, well, I guess for obviously for the COVID element, that that's certainly happening in cities. Um, getting back to sort of the the period that you were researching, um, is this. Is this sort of the same phenomenon throughout China and cities and in countryside or what kind of what kind of variation did you see?
2: Yeah, so the two strategies that I, dis- I described in in the book uh, um, within outsourcing repression is one of outsourcing violence and, and, and outsourcing uh, persuasion, which is mobilizing the masses. So this strategy started from Maoist years. Uh, what the Chinese would call right you, you you send in some sort of social brokers or political brokers going there to persuade individuals to comply with state with state policies so as you, yeah, so as Archie, you... Let's,
1: let's talk about that second strategy then before we talk about the the variations because I haven't given you a chance to talk about that so so on the one hand we have this sort of uh, approach of outsourcing uh, violence to thugs so so they're or outsourcing repression in a violent form to thugs who can who have some kind of deniability about their connection with the government, uh, but you're saying that another kind of uh, well, both very old but maybe more prevalent approach that that also has this feature of avoiding outright kind of filmable violence um, is is this uh, very old old school Maoist thing of, of what they call thought work of going in and persuading people. So so right. tell me more about that how that how that happens what yeah persuaded
2: right so, so so thought work if you put it in social science term um, it is really about the state mobilizing a small segment of the society right who are who are political brokers these are these are people who work in neighborhood committees in the cities or village committees in rural areas or social brokers which is the focus of the second part of my book so these are these are community volunteers and community enthusiasts these are the aunties and the uncles the dama and the dashu in that you see in chinese cities right Volu- uh, these are retired individuals they sometimes they have party affiliation but they are definitely kind of loyal loyal to the party and believe in what the party does so they are regularly mobilized by the state paid minimal amount of com- of compensation to carry out uh, to carry out persuasion because these people are deeply embedded within the community they 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 have been you know living with people they are trying to persuade for decades uh, so they so persuasion carry for something like
1: a, like a redevelopment project saying you need to you should move to the little apartment on the edge of the city that they've allocated so he, to you yeah
2: so so the, the persuasion is usually framed in this way it's it's not framed in the way of you have to comply with the state policies, but is usually is usually framed as if you don't comply. Uh, think about the inconvenience you'll be imposing on your neighbor. His son is trying to get married. They have to. They need a new apartment in in order to get get married. And the government is trying to give that to them now. But you your refusal to do so, you are creating convenience for a lot of people, right? So people cave in because of social pressure. And the reason being drawn on is also of social repression. These people have social prestige, can then draw on their social capital to conduct uh, persuasion. So on the receiving end, people don't feel like this is state repression. But by complying to what social brokers ask them to do, they are in effect complying to state policies.
1: I feel like in a sense, it's yeah, it's kind of still behind it. It's almost like because of the inevitability of the state, You know, the state is going to do some policy and it's not going to like move anyone you know for instance you know everyone in your community will all be moved at the same time so if one of you refuses to move everyone else will be uh will suffer and that that kind of that's still that's but again i guess it 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 removes it from being the state decision but that is the state decision you know if they were negotiating with each person one at a time then you couldn't be blamed for harming your neighbors but it's because they're they're sort of saying, you as a community are going to get this deal, and if anyone doesn't go with it, then you'll all suffer. Um, that kind of uh, creates an opening for someone to say, hey, I'm just here as your friend, as your, your auntie, you've known me for years, and you know this is just what's in everyone's best interest.
2: Right. No, precisely. So the alternative is that the state will have to send in demolition officers. Right, carrying official starters to convince people. So if there's resistance, if there's conflict, it's a state-society conflict, it's a direct confrontation between the state and the citizens. Sometimes it might break out into protest and might result in, in petition. But if the state mobilises social actors, especially social volunteers, to do persuasion, the state can actually step back you know, hide itself behind the curtain and let the social actors do all the job when there are conflicts, often case in demolition, because these social actors, they're actually incentivized by carers. They are being paid to do that sort of thing, and the more people they, they persuade, they are, get, they are getting paid paid more. So when there are conflicts, it's a societal versus it's a society versus society conflict, right? So the state can actually wash its hand in a way that that uh, it changes the nature of the, comf- the conflicts that doesn't
0: That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Okay. And so, um, okay, so these are the two kind of methods. So one is the thugs for hire and one is the kind of grannies for hire. Um, and the, they, they're both ways to keep the state, uh, from being directly implicated in, uh, carrying out somewhat unpopular policies. Um, yeah. So then I was asking you about, uh, what do you see as a sort of a geographic variation um, or, or variation over time in the use of these
2: strategies? Sure, sure. So so, um, so, I started this project back in 2011. Uh, so over time, I see this uh, tem- temporal as well as regional variation. In terms of temporal variation, there is increasingly kind of less violence being, being used over time because the cause of violence... Being used is increased with the more prevalence of social media and smartphones. uh, uh, The the chances of getting local government exposed and subject them to accountability issue has increased. Um, In terms of regional variation, as I move from western and inland provinces to middle of China and coastal cities in the last couple of years. I also see less and less violence was being being deployed. So when I did work in CBD Shanghai, Central Business District of Shanghai, uh, in Guangzhou, violence is rarely heard of because people are very savvy, highly educated metropolitan cities. Uh, they'll be very stupid. Local governments will be extremely desperate and extremely stupid to use uh, explicit violence against uh, citizens.
1: But then... That's interesting. So you're saying that, that with the rise of social media, there's been less less violence. On the other hand, you know, uh, the broad brush characterization of, of the Xi Jinping era has been that it's become more repressive. So, so how do you reconcile those two things? You're, it sounds like you're saying citizens have more power. Yeah. They can,
2: yeah. You know, no, those are, media. Uh, yeah. that is an excellent question. So that is some that is an issue that I tackle in my in my conclusion. So what has happened in the last couple of years uh, particularly in Xinjiang and and Tibet and Hong Kong, not so much in in uh, Han part of China, is that I think there's a reversal of uh, of trend or direction. From what you know, uh, uh, the authors of spin dictators call uh, instead of them spinning it right, which is what I see as the merit of outsourcing repression as, as a strategy to one of rule by fear. So I think under Xi Jinping, the administration is getting less and less uh, reticent of using, explicitly, of using explicit violence uh, and explicit repression against uh, the society, uh, like we have seen in Hong Kong. Um, you know, this is a very interesting trend. I think it's against the strategy of outsourcing repression, which, in my opinion, has helped the CCP grip society and rule society for many decades. So, in spite of its success, uh, the CCP under Xi Jinping is actually moving in the direct in the other direction, which I think is going to ultimately hurt the party. Hmm.
1: So, they're being becoming less less subtle about it, and much more direct. Although I did remember in uh, I mean, in Hong Kong, there were certainly were, I mean, maybe this is part of the transition, but um, during the protests, there were uh, various incidents where the police just kind of stood back and then kind of mysterious thugs would go in and beat people up. So that is kind of still that was kind of the outsourcing strategy. But maybe, I guess, yeah. you know, now, well, now they become much more willing to just go ahead and, and arrest people.
2: Yeah, so the Yuen Lang incident, I would actually describe that as a failed case of outsourcing violence. Because also violence usual context in China is you do it two a.m. in the morning in the back alley, but in the case of Hong Kong, it was seven p.m. peak hours traffic, uh, in a very busy MTR station, right? So everyone is going to be witnessing that because people everyone has smartphones in Hong Kong, uh, they can just send it to the CNN or if not, just upload to. Twitter. So I think the strategy there, the intention is actually not uh, to get people to comply or to give up their resistance. The intention is actually to intimidate, explicitly to intimidate, to show that how powerful and how violent we can be. We can actually go hurt you uh, if you don't uh, give up your resistance, your activism. Right.
1: Yeah, that's kind of the trade off, right? I guess if, you know, if you... Only kind of bully specific people to achieve specific ends, then the rest of society doesn't see it, which can be good for maintaining the appearance of legitimacy. But I guess if there's a, uh, a mass resistance, as there certainly was in, in Hong Kong with lots and lots of people, then maybe the incentive goes the other way, where you don't want to hide the fact that, uh, you know, you're going to put yourself in danger if you get on the street. You want to you want to bring that message home as, as firmly uh, and directly as possible.
2: Yeah. Um, so you know, to send out a wide and a loud, a loud and clear message to the external audience that um, what you are doing, your activism, carried explicit costs to your bodily harm uh, and to your and to your lives. Uh, and I think that message was actually very clear in that uh Yuen Lang incident.
1: Right. But that does go against what uh, Treisman talks about in his book, and I think part of you know. There's two audiences that I think he mentions, um, which which also come into play here as well. One is, you know, the message you want to send to your citizens, uh, where on the one hand, beating them up shows that you're powerful. On the other hand, it shows that you have to beat people up because they won't just go along with what you said because it's a good idea. Um, and then also there's the external audience, international audience. And uh, it does seem like um, there's been, you know, uh, as, as China under Xi Jinping has become more confident i guess we could say um there's there's been less concern for you know what the international community uh or people watching things on on cnn uh might feel about um might feel about you know witnessing witnessing violence we might we might wag our finger about it or even impose kind of sanctions but
2: but sure sure Sure. and I i think in in everyday outsourcing violence that i talk about in my book there's actually no foreign audience, right? Because an average foreign person sitting in Toronto or San Francisco usually wouldn't be reading about violent demolition in Zhengzhou, in Shanghai, unless it gets to New York Times, which is very unusual. Maybe once in the last 30 years, there's a self-demolition case in Chengdu, which made it to New York Times. But, But the sort of explicit uh, violence being used in Hong Kong, in Xinjiang, we read every day in major Western newspaper. So, which is why I think under Xi Jinping in the last couple of years, the, the regime has really switched its uh, emphasis, how it conducts rep- is repression. Uh, it has, you know, totally, uh, forget about uh, casting aside the high cost uh, involved of uh, using explicitly, of using explicit violence. So he has gone to the other direction, forgetting about its very successful strategy that has served the region very, very well.
1: Yeah, I feel like that is a, for a lot of us uh, uh, who, who study China, we sort of, uh, up until, you know, we've all kind of tra- just transitioned to different points. But I feel like in the Hu Jintao era, a lot of it was like, oh, they're actually very smart and very clever about how they're doing this and, you know, maintaining control without being overtly violent and, um, you know, uh, I think there's been a shift in the tone of the community of thinking. You know, even if you guys want to stay in power, what you're doing is just not a strategy that's, uh, you know, it's at best a very short-term strategy. Um, and in terms of long-run legitimacy and support of the of the Chinese people, um, you know, who cares, right? even if you don't care what foreigners think about you. Um,
2: sure, sure. But 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 I, but I think to be fair, there's kind of emerging research that shows who in China actually knows about repression in Xinjiang because they have so much control over propaganda and information flow, right? You could have very explicit violent repression in Xinjiang and Hong Kong, but what we see is different from what people in China see. So in that sense, they can still have the best of both worlds. Yes, they do not care about what foreign audience think, but domestically, they're still able to control it and they still actually care about what Chinese citizens think. Chinese citizens living in China,
1: anymore. right? Yeah, they absolutely. Yeah, they have a lot of control over information, especially about events within China. And then, uh, yeah, and then, and then also on, on top of that, there's uh, you know a sense that the you know the Han Chinese certainly don't identify with you know Tibetans and and Uyghurs and, and tend to. Uh, Maybe feel like you know, just as with you know, minority racial groups, a lot of places. Sometimes the members of the majority feel like, well, they they're just getting what they deserve, or they have to be controlled in this way, and you know, this kind of attitude um, goes there as well, and so, and even more so when they're getting such a, a limited information picture of, um, of what's happening. Um, so so let let's let's shift gears a little bit now and talk um, in our last few minutes about um, uh, the research that you did for this book. So so tell us. Um, you know, you actually, uh, your background uh, before your PhD was in economic policy and consulting, and your first book was about China's world debt crisis. So uh, what was the path that brought you to studying thugs and repression, and, and how did you go about uh, doing this research?
2: Uh, that's a funny question. Um, I'm quite, quite happy to share the journey that I went through to get this book out. So I wanted to study in 2011. The first, my first field site was in Hefei. So I went in, I wanted to study kind of the fiscal Motivation behind urbanization—that's a big, that's that's a big topic. But you know, I, I was on the ground talking to a lot of people, and I was also interviewing people in Chengdu, in various other cities. People keep telling me about 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 thugs, about violence that they have been receiving, about intimidation, and that 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 got me very very curious, right? And I figured that you know that is a big question, big puzzle, big piece of the puzzle within the bigger picture of urbanization. So I took a kind of a very risky move, um, you know, forget about the fiscal and taxation type of angle that I wanted to focus on and go right into state repression. And very few people study violence, if at all, about contemporary China, uh, uh, let alone in the, in the repression sense. So I, it took me a long time to kind of to translate what I observed and translate that into academic knowledge and be able to kind of frame it properly in uh, political science terms. Mm-hmm.
1: And so, where did you where did you do the research? Um, you know, why don't you talk about the combination of uh, quantitative and uh, qualitative uh, work that went into the book?
2: Yeah, so the, so the book uh, deploys you know uh, three empirical strategies. Uh, I it's based on almost a decade of ethnographic work from twenty eleven to twenty nineteen. Started from, from Hefei, then went to Chengdu, uh, Kunming, uh, Zhengzhou, Beijing, Tianjin, Shanghai, Guangzhou, uh, went to a lot of places, but only a couple of cities has allowed me to collect enough data to put together case case studies. But but other cities that I've been to, like Guangzhou and Tianjin, I've got quotations, you know, sprinkled throughout different parts of the book. Second strategies is I have a team of, you know, researchers who helped me collect uh, more than 2,000 uh, demolition and housing and land grab cases from the 80s, from the 90s to 2010s that helped, to help me see, to help me analyze this at the more macro and everyday level. So if you like, those two first two strategies are, outcome variable, right? They, they show you what the outcome is in terms of repression and resistance that it provoked or otherwise. I also did content analysis of government policy documents. These are written by municipal and central government instructing the local officials how demolition should be conducted, whether or not they should be using you know, reward, punishment, carrot sticks or persuasion. So over time, I find that the Frequency of persuasion in terms of uh, frequency of words analysis that has increased tremendously. Uh, and also and, and also the frequency of uh, preemptive measures, preemptive repression has increased tremendously relative to exposed measures. So those are kind of input variables. This is what the government intend, but uh, the out, the outcome may or may not differ depending upon the area and different time period.
1: And so what kind of what kind of outcome differences do you, did you see
2: so in terms of outcome difference were well, like you know the temporal variation that we discussed earlier and regional variation uh, less violence over time and less violence from rural to urban areas mm-hmm. uh they are, they are these are the two major differences
1: okay um okay so um, you know you, you had uh, a lot of experience here again doing I mean, not just doing field work, but, you know, definitely uh, on one of the most sensitive uh, topics in China. Um, uh, I know that, that you mentioned it became a lot harder for you over the course of the Xi era. How do you see that uh, evolving uh, in the future? Do you think you'll be able to go back and never do any kind of work like this again? Um, are, are other people able to? Where, where, yeah. where, how do things look going forward? Yeah, yeah.
2: you know, I, I feel increasingly... I feel you know, tremendously privileged to be able to do what I have done. Um, I felt very, very, very lucky. Um, Would I go back to China now to do the same work again? No, because I think, you know, calculation of costs and benefits, uh, the calculation is entirely different. I don't need to spell it out explicitly. Uh, You know, people know the answer to that question. And I wouldn't encourage anyone to do that uh, in in China today, so I see that as a as a, as the end of an era, as I've used that term somewhere somewhere else, you know, and and end of an era of certain sort of uh, academic work that could be done on China. So you know, walking into the third the third term of Xi Jinping's China, we have to think about different strategies of of data collection. Uh, People have been scraping data, open source data, but you have to wonder why those data is open source uh, in the first place. So going back to my three empirical strategies, the third strategy of content analysis of government documents is an open source data because the government wants you to see what they want you to see. So if everyone just look at open source data and nothing else, not cross-checking in other ways because we cannot. I th- I think that must have implications for the direction of China studies, but that sounds like you know our very limited options at the moment.
1: Yeah, it does. Uh, it is quite pessimistic. I mean, they 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 do limit what we can see. Although you know, if they uh, partly you know the nature of the modern economy and you know the social media, there's a lot of things that get out. Even although, of course, they're also uh, working hard to censor it, censor it as well. But yeah, it's getting getting very tricky. And even you know, for people who are doing quantitative research, it's uh, you know always been a crucial element that has to you know go in and talk to people um, in the country about like how things work to understand the context of you know what where your data is coming from and make sure you're interpreting in a way that's uh, that's fundamentally sensible. Um yeah. So it's so,
2: so is. It's like looking for your keys under under the, the lamp post, right? Uh, we have very limited view of China, but I think it also encourages people to speculate about China because they just simply do not have data. So mm-hmm. you know, to use that to use that analogy, people might stop searching for keys. They might think you know the keys are actually lost elsewhere. In actual case, it might just be in the dark the dark alley.
1: So we're all just guessing.
2: Yes, correct, and and that is not what we want to do with uh, a rising power, right? I mean, we really need knowledge, explicitly know about what the power China is and is becoming. Uh, guesswork is really not conducive to to uh, this era of international geopolitics.
1: Right. Yeah, it's very sensitive times, um, and yeah, as as we try to avoid. Every, con- you know, the, avoid the conflicts we can, and and hopefully cooperate where we can. Having having more mutual understanding is important. So it's it's uh, really really unfortunate that it's become so difficult. Well, um, I guess on, on that uh, somewhat pessimistic note, um, uh, we're just about out of time. So uh, I want to thank you uh, very much for for taking time to talk with me.
2: Okay, thank you so much, Peter.